Be human, not concrete. The Harden Up Podcast with Joel Clapham. Hello, welcome to the third episode of Be Human, Not Concrete, the Hearten Up podcast with Joel Clapham. This episode, we're going to be talking about depression, one of the more common mental illnesses, along with anxiety, which we had a look at last episode. This episode, I'll also get more personal with you than I have before. We're sharing more of my background and my experiences. And I do that not because I want a pity party or because of any reason other than I've lived this, I've experienced it people I love and care about have also experienced this to varying degrees and there's a lot of experience there to share with you some insights to give and some things to really bring to life so to speak of the past little while since our last episode I have taken a fairly big step for me I am no longer taking antidepressant medication that's pretty huge that's something I started taking in 2012 when I first went to see a GP for the return of what became diagnosed as major depressive disorder. I'd been on a few different antidepressants in that first six months or so. It was quite difficult trying to find one that my body and I responded well to and to find the right level, the right dosage. Eventually, we ended up with me taking Effexor, which was prescribed by the psychiatrist I was seeing after doing a thorough medication review, looking at all of the different ways that the other medications had impacted me with side effects, and he felt that this one was worth giving a go. There are a few things to bear in mind when taking Effexor. Uh, It is an SNRI, which is a little different to the more common SSRI type of antidepressant. It was explained to me at the time as it basically tackles two things rather than one. So as well as working to correct the serotonin imbalance or dysfunction, this also focused on norepinephrine. Uh, I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I found this medication to do a, a really good job for me for 13 years, which is how long I was taking it. And it didn't give me a false sense of high. It wasn't an artificial mood inflator or anything like that what it did for me it was like a mezzanine on the low it was a false bottom so i found i was still able to feel and experience all of the typical emotions that you would hope a human being would but for me what it did was stop me from plummeting when things were challenging or when things would have been challenging in the past i found i was able to manage them more successfully rather than feeling beholden And so I didn't have the same depths of despair that I experienced prior to taking Effexor. In the lead up to not taking the medication, plan was put together to help me step away from that medication. It was going to be a very gradual thing rather than sudden, as is always advised. And so my dosage decreased and then the frequency decreased and then I stopped taking the medication. I found it was a a really interesting Uh, sort of two to three week period of adjusting going through what's often called the effects or withdrawals or antidepressant withdrawals and what I experienced is in no way unique these are all common experiences and symptoms that people face when moving off an antidepressant medication Uh, I found that I was getting quite regular brain zaps like every minute or so my brain would almost sort of tingle 
for anyone who's ever touched an electric fence, you know, that sort of split second jolt where you sort of go and your brain just sort of gives a bit of a start. That's what it was like every minute or so on and off for periods of a few hours here or there. So I experienced that for a good couple of weeks. There was some slight change in my perception of time, like a minute or two would pass by and I wouldn't be able to remember what I've been doing for that minute or two if I was just sitting stationary watching something, for example. If I was out about moving, I was fine. Uh, my sleep was really quite disturbed, particularly for the first week. I had really strong, vivid dreams, really random dreams. And this is a common side effect as well, so I wasn't perturbed by them or worried about them. I knew all of the things that I was experiencing were likely to happen. But sleep was really quite difficult as well, and I'd wake up absolutely exhausted. It's the closest I've felt to being hungover in a good eight and a half years since I last had a drink. So that was quite interesting. It was a good reminder of, of why I, I no longer drink. So that was kind of strange to experience again, that feeling of heavy fatigue, sore eyes, fuzzy brain, all that kind of thing that you normally experience when you have a hangover. The other thing I noticed was more of a, a physical thing. My, my body was more sensitive to things. So I was feeling the heat slightly more. And I'm a cuddly ginger, so I feel the heat anyway, but I was slightly more sensitive to the heat. I was also more sensitive to the cold. So when I was having ice in my drink, for example, uh, the drink would taste even colder than what it was. So my sense of touch and temperature had become more pronounced. One of the other side effects that you often experience when you take antidepressant medication, if you're a guy, is that it can make it slightly more challenging for you to be ready to participate, if I can use that language, and be able to complete when it comes to acts of intimacy. So getting to the starting line and then getting to the finishing line uh, can be a little bit challenging when you are on antidepressant medication. I noticed that within the first week, that changed. And like what it was with heat and cold, um, my body was more sensitive. So that's been interesting to adjust to. The other main thing though that I've noticed since no longer being on antidepressant medication for a few months now, or nearly three months, is that I have no choice but to deal with the feelings or emotions that come up for me at the time that they do. And I've really enjoyed that. I wasn't numb and my medication wasn't disconnecting me from what I was feeling. But in hindsight, I can see that there was a, a bit of a degree of protection so feelings were slightly less extreme, if I can use that word. It's probably not the right term. But say if I was absolutely happy, I would now describe elation as a 10 out of 10. Whereas I can see that when I was on that medication, elation for me compared to now would have been an 8 out of 10. So a little bit of a, a change in the depth of feeling. And that also presented with feelings of sadness or feelings of discontent. And I had the opportunity to really see how I was able to manage these sorts of feelings and emotions and experiences on my own, sans medication, just last week. Recently, I was given a couple of boxes of my father's personal possessions, cards, photos, correspondence, that sort of thing. Something that sort of sat in a family member's storage since he died in 1998. And while I had bits of pieces from the times he was alive... 
a collection of all of those things is something that I, I hadn't seen. When that was offered to me, I was really curious about what might be in there. I was really curious about what my response or reaction might be to seeing these things. And I took it as an opportunity to really actively manage my feelings and emotions when dealing with something which could potentially kick off a, a, you know, a strong response or some fairly strong feelings. Um, I love my dad. He ended his own life when I was 16. And it's been a whole an absence that I've felt ever since. And so being given a box of his personal effects and photos and cards and things that meant something to him was something I was quite touched by, that opportunity to at least have a look. I was really curious as to how I would um, would handle it. I sat that box, or those boxes or bags, in the corner of my home study for a couple of weeks, I guess in an effort to habituate um, and get used to it and normalise those things being around. I didn't want to just uh, open them up and dive right in. So I sat them there for a couple of weeks until I had um, the kind of day where if I needed to, I could clear the rest of the day in order to take some time out, depending on what my response to looking through this stuff was going to be. And so late one morning last week, I sat down with these these bags and I, I worked my way through. Most of the photos that were in there I had seen before or seen copies of. There were a few there though that were from the last couple of years of, of my dad's life that I hadn't seen before. One was him at a costume party one was him with a group of friends sitting at a pub having a beer and he just looked as though he was listening fairly intently to what someone else was talking about. And it was really cool to see a more fun social side of my dad that I didn't really get to see a whole lot in the last, I don't know, five or six years. And so that was pretty cool to see. What I also saw in these things though um, and that really had a big impact on me was the sheer number of letters and cards where I had expressed my love to my dad. You know, they were personalised cards and letters from a child. He uh, was an Essendon fan, so many of the things that he'd held on to were pictures I'd drawn relating to football and Essendon or articles I'd cut out about the Essendon Football Club and given to him because I thought he might be interested. And so that was kind of sweet to see that he'd held on to those things and that they meant something to him. The one thing, though, that I found really confronting was a letter I'd written my dad in mid-1997. Just for a bit of context, at the point I wrote that letter, we had not seen our dad, uh, me and my two younger brothers that I grew up with from mum and dad. We'd not seen our dad for about six months at that stage. And we hadn't really spoken to him for about five months, maybe even the full six months. And this was unusual. Dad moved away from us three boys and, and our mum after her mum separated. He moved back to Warrnambool, where we started out. And that was five to six hours away from Wangaratta, northeast Victoria, where we were. So we only saw him on school holidays. So it was four times a year. We might speak to him every couple of weeks on the phone. 
Both mum and dad didn't always have the home phone on when we were growing up. At times, it was completely disconnected. We didn't have inbound calls coming in at all for periods of time. And so it made regular communication a little bit difficult. And when one parent had the phone on, but the other one didn't, we'd go up to the phone, nearest phone box and use the, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was a 1-800 number you could call and put in a code and it would charge the cost of the call to the receiver. Um, it was Homelink, maybe, something like that. It was a, a telecom or Telstra thing. And so we would, would do that uh, if the, we didn't have outgoing calls on uh, or incoming calls. So we hadn't seen Dad for about six months and we'd, we'd not spoken to him for about five months. And I was pretty disappointed and angry about that at the time. I didn't understand how a parent could go that period of time without speaking to their child, how they could go that period of time without making an effort. And frankly, it pissed me off because I was 15, I had two younger brothers that lived with my mother and I, and it felt like it was up to me to try and maintain that contact, maintain that relationship. And I was annoyed about that. It shouldn't have been up to me. There should have been responsible adults taking ownership of facilitating that relationship and there weren't but it got to the point in mid-1997 that I'd, I'd had enough and I, I guess recognized or acknowledged that if something was to change I had to change it and as much as I didn't want that responsibility um, I realized that it was probably going to be the only way that something was going to improve so I wrote my dad a letter and I apologized for not having been in touch with him over the previous six months and when I read that letter now as a 42 year old man what struck me is how I wasn't able to be honest or open about how I felt and I apologized to my parent for them not making a good enough effort to remain an active part of my life and now as a as a grown man and as someone who understands these things a whole lot better makes me really sad for 15-year-old me. I shouldn't have had to carry that. But the reason I'm sharing this with you is because having stopped taking antidepressant medication after 12 year, 11 years of doing so and being uh, you know, in the situation where I was seeing my own challenges as a 15-year-old, and feeling sadness and anger and compassion for 15-year-old me, but also to the adults in my life who should have done better. In the past, when I wasn't doing well, even six or seven years ago when I was still in the thick of things in terms of antidepressants, that sort of thing would have knocked me around for days. It would have really affected me. I would have been really overwhelmed. I would have cried for hours. 
I would have tried to relax or zone out by binge watching some TV or getting lost in a book and it would not have been something that I could have sat with and worked through the way I proudly was able to last week. You can hear a bit of emotion in my voice and that's normal, that's fine. I'm not ashamed of, of sharing that. But last week, all this did was have a, a strong impact on me for a couple of hours. Uh, I felt the really strong emotions. I didn't push them away. I didn't try and squash them down or suppress them because that's not, that's not what being human and not concrete is all about. As humans, we feel our emotions. We listen to what our body is trying to tell us about how we feel. And we let the emotions pass through us, which they do. No feeling is forever. So I embrace that as is my want. And I sat with those feelings and those emotions. And I allowed myself to really feel them. And I got out a piece of paper and a pen and I wrote a letter as 42-year-old me to 15-year-old me. And all I did in that letter was just acknowledge what things were like for him. And I acknowledged what, I, what I've already said with you here in this episode. And I said, I'm sorry you had to carry that. I'm sorry you felt as though maintaining a relationship with your father was your responsibility. I'm sorry that no other adult around you took a more proactive role in ensuring that you and your dad were in contact. And I just acknowledged how proud I am of that 15-year-old boy. And it felt really good to write that. And after I'd written that letter, I, I folded it up and set it on the table and left it there for a day and during that time I did a few things that I know are really good for me and help me manage when I'm feeling a little bit distressed or activated so I took my dogs for a walk uh, I had an ice bath which I love love ice baths and I listened to some music while I cooked dinner for myself and that was it. I made sure I got to bed at a regular time. And the next morning I woke up and I felt really fine, felt really good. And I was really proud of myself for, for taking those steps to proactively manage a challenging occasion. And I sat down with my morning coffee at the table and, and read the letter to 42-year-old me, now had written 15-year-old me. And... <clears throat> this time I was really proud when I read the letter of who I am now and who I've been working really hard, particularly over the last 18 months, to develop into. And I loved how proud of myself I felt. I loved how connected to younger me I felt. Rather than being, you know, like a, a feeling like a completely different person or a million years ago, I kind of felt like I was reading that letter with 15-year-old me alongside me. And, um, and that was really nice to feel that, that connection to self, which is really what it's all about. 
Thank you for letting me share with you a personal milestone and a personal challenge success. I hope you've been doing well. I hope you've been doing okay and taking care of yourself. If there are things that you do which help you manage when you feel distressed or overwhelmed, I'd love to hear about them. Send us an email or get in contact via social channels. Love to hear what you do. What are your go-to when it comes to helping you manage or regulate strong feelings? This episode, we're taking a deepish dive into depression. How is it different to just feeling crap and sad? What constitutes depression as a mental illness? How is it diagnosed? What does it feel like to the person experiencing it? What might it look like to others? And what treatments can be helpful? As human beings, we all experience the full gamut of emotions. Hopefully, more of the pleasant ones than the challenging ones. But all of them are part of being human and being alive. Feelings and emotions essentially are messages from our body and our mind to our brain about what's going on around us, inside us, and how we feel. That's what emotions and feelings are, really. Messages for us to either acknowledge, observe, and use to help guide us, or suppress because they're unpleasant or difficult and we don't know what to do with them. We'll talk more about suppression shortly. Sadness and all its variations and subtypes are part of the human experience. Every single one of us will face individual moments and periods of time that involve sadness, loss, grief and despair. And we probably all have on multiple occasions because it's part of the human experience. We can have rough days, unpleasant encounters and experiences. We can lose something that means a great deal to us. Might be an opportunity, a person, a sense of our own comfort or safety. Sadness about loss or unrealized hope is a natural experience and emotion we've all faced before and we will all face again. These times can be really shit. They can knock us for six emotionally. And if we're unable or unwilling to manage these times and feelings healthily and successfully, they can contribute to development of depression. But on their own, they're not, just by virtue of occurrence. So medically, what is depression? What we generally refer to as depression is medically known as major depressive disorder. This and other forms of depression are outlined in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the primary diagnostic reference used in the US, Australia and many other English-speaking countries. A common feature of all of these disorders is the presence of sadness, emptiness, irritable mood, as well as changes that significantly affect someone's ability and capacity to function, both physically and behaviourally. And it also affects the way we think. The main signs and symptoms of depression that we might notice in ourselves or other people are a depressed mood or a sad mood that doesn't really change much or doesn't really go away. A loss of interest or pleasure, like a sense of numbness and a feeling nothing at all. And often those two things, different experiences of depression. So we might feel really sad, really profound sadness for a period of time, usually extending beyond two weeks as a minimum. Or we might feel real numbness and things that once brought us joy or happiness or a sense of peace and contentment don't have that impact on us at all. So it can go one of those two ways. People are often really quite fatigued and have very little energy. There are feelings of worthlessness and guilt. There are thoughts of mortality, not necessarily thinking about ending their own life, 
but perhaps thinking, I wish something would happen to me so I could have a break. Those thoughts of people's mortality are often quite prevalent when we experience depression, and they're not conscious, they're just there, sort of like intrusive thoughts. People often find it really difficult to concentrate and make decisions. You've got all these things running around your head and you're feeling incredibly low about yourself and incredibly jaded about the world around you and your life. It's going to be pretty bloody hard to concentrate on something or make a decision. Physically, we often see people start to move more slowly or become a little bit more agitated in their physical movement. And what we can notice as a small sign, perhaps, is someone who is starting to stoop over a little bit more physically than they ordinarily would. They might walk more slowly. Their gait might be less pronounced or extended than it normally is. So those physical signs are something we can notice. People usually have difficulty sleeping, either getting to sleep or sleeping too much. People often gain or lose weight rather quickly or to a greater degree than they would through normal life. So we've got a depressed mood that doesn't necessarily change much or go away, a loss of interest or pleasure in things that normally would have that impact on us, feeling really tired, feeling worthless, conscious of our own mortality, hard to focus, hard to make decisions, moving around the world a little bit more slowly, can't settle down, can't sleep or can't wake up or both, and our weight is changing as well. All of these are signs and symptoms of major depressive disorder. And these things usually need to be present for a minimum period of at least two weeks before a medical professional will consider a diagnosis. doesn't mean that when we have periods of a week or so where some of these things are present that it's not hard. It just means that medically it doesn't yet meet the criteria to be diagnosed as depression. And if we think about all these signs and symptoms, and that's not an exhaustive list, by the way, they're just the main ones, we might develop a bit of a better idea of the impact that a mental health problem like depression can have on someone. This is a medically diagnosable and treatable condition. It's not just an excuse from someone being a bit miserable or lazy. So please drop that thinking and terminology right now if you haven't already. Invalidation and diminishment of the significant suffering that people endure as part of a mental illness, like depression, is very real. And it doesn't need trivialising just because other people can't, don't, won't, or are too uncomfortable to offer empathy without judgement, even if they can't relate to the experience. There's no room for ignorance and dismissiveness among good people. And holding those views just tells other people you're judgmental, uncompassionate, and frankly, a bit of a shit cunt. Depression can be assessed and diagnosed through what's called a Kessler Psychological Distress Scale, or a K10 for short. The K10 is widely used as a fairly simple and quick measure of psychological distress and involves 10 questions with five response options. Those five options of response are all of the time, most of the time, some of the time, a little of the time, and none of the time. There's a modified version of the K10 test available at the Black Dog Institute website through their tool, My Compass. Now that's a questionnaire and it will ask you a series of questions about your thoughts, feelings and behaviours over the past four weeks or 30 days or so. And it will give you an indication of whether depression and or anxiety might be something worth accessing some help for. It's a great way if you're a little bit curious or you'd like to learn a little bit more and test the waters before then hopefully taking some steps to see a professional 
to begin recovery from this very human health condition. If I think back to periods when I've been experiencing depression, major depressive disorder or persistent depressive disorder, which is where it is there for a prolonged period of time of at least two years or more, some of the things that I can look back on and can identify now that I either chose not to acknowledge or wasn't aware of, first and most significantly, I was really overweight. I put on about 30 kilos in a 12-month period when I was unwell with depression. I was eating rubbish just for the quick energy burst. I was eating a lot of sugar and a lot of fried fatty foods because they tasted good and they helped me feel a little bit better. Essentially, I was eating my emotions and coupled with the fatigue and very little physical activity, I gained that amount of weight and I was pretty visibly different to what I had been beforehand. I also had some real sleep problems. During the week, I was working really hard in the senior job I had at the time. And during the working week, I was so wired from working 60 or more hours a week. My mind was racing. I couldn't relax, couldn't switch off, couldn't get to sleep. And I almost didn't want to give myself permission to sleep during the week because I was so focused on doing that job well and keeping that income coming in for my family. But on the weekends, naturally, if you've been operating on 10 all week, you're going to crash. And given how much I was working and how exhausted I was, I didn't have any energy or capacity to function much at all on weekends. That meant I was sleeping a lot of the time, and when I was awake, I was pretty low energy, and I wasn't really a whole lot of fun. Given how I felt, it's pretty easy to see I was probably going to be pretty irritable, both at work and home, and I was. I've often reflected on myself and my life at that point of time to try and better understand myself so that I can manage better. And I'm someone who loves a contest of ideas. I love debating things. I like looking at things from different angles, different perspectives, getting other people's thoughts to try and find better solutions or better ways of doing things. I love challenging each other constructively to find the best solution for something or to look at something in a completely new way just to see what it's like. I love that. I really enjoy it where it's constructive. But if I'm completely honest with you, I reckon in the 12 to 18 month period prior to me having a breakdown in mid-2016, I wasn't just someone who enjoyed a robust debate. I was a belligerent, argumentative prick. I was feeling so sad, so inadequate, feeling so broken and irreparable and all of that. So subconsciously, what I was doing, as I now understand, was trying to start discussions and debates that I thought I could win in order to make myself feel better. This is a key behavioural way that depression can show itself. If we or someone we know is showing an increase in their level of agitation, combativeness or picking arguments, it could be a sign that there's some depression underneath that. doesn't mean that their behaviour is okay, and some of my behaviour back when I was unwell wasn't okay. But it just might give us a little bit more of insight, a little bit more compassion, and hopefully a greater sense of understanding what's going on for them and not writing them off just because they're being an arsehole. In the year or so before I really broke down, I didn't do a whole lot socially either. I tried to put on a brave face and do the bare minimum as a good family man, but it wasn't really all that much fun to be around. I wasn't socialising with friends. I wasn't really going out all that much. And I don't think that I was as lively or supportive company as I am these days. These experiences that I've had have all helped me learn a whole lot more about depression and understand that our mental health, just like our physical health, 
is something that is at its best when we actively manage it and when we take time to check in with ourselves, reflect on how we're going, whether we're looking after ourselves as best and as responsibly as we could be. We think about our interactions with people, whether we're happy with them, whether we could have said or done something a little bit more gently, a little bit more constructively. And we take all these things into consideration and take some proactive steps to better care for ourselves and to make healthier decisions. So actively managing our mental health is something that requires effort. There's a growing understanding within the psychology world that depression is often the result of someone who's had their feelings and their sense of worth or their sense of safety invalidated over a long period of time by people who are important to them. So if we either grew up or now live in environments where we bring things up for discussion and we're told we're being silly, we're overthinking, stop crying, stop sucking, it's all in our head, harden up, be a man, just get on with it, all of those sorts of shit things A natural human response to that is to shut down and suppress our feelings. It's an emotional freeze response to an environment we don't feel safe in, even though we might not recognize it as that at the time. Over time, these unexpressed feelings and the subsequent frustration and anger get turned back around on us, and it becomes the voice we use when we think about and speak to ourselves. Those squashed down feelings and the negative words and phrases from others sit within us, without anywhere else to go, and they become really toxic. This is a huge reason why talking constructively with a good and compassionate person, like a trusted friend or a mental health professional, is one of the most important things that we can make part of our regular day-to-day life. We're human beings. We have emotions. We have feelings. They are part of our body. They're part of our genes and they're a significant shaper of the way we interact with each other and the world around us. Depression is a treatable mental health problem. Unfortunately, there isn't a three-step process or checklist that's guaranteed to work for everyone. So we need to take the advice and guidance of a professional and try a bunch of different things to find what works for us. What works for me might not work for somebody else, but different elements may. So it's really important to stay the course Take the guidance and advice of professionals, give things a go, see how they feel, and if it doesn't work, try something else. There's a really good resource put together by Beyond Blue. It's available on their website, and I'll put a link to it on our website as well, heartnup.com.au forward slash podcast. This booklet's called A Guide to What Works for Depression, an Evidence-Based Review. It outlines all of the different treatments, services, and strategies that have an evidence base for helping people to treat and manage depressive disorders, and it's well worth reading. From my perspective, what I found worked for me is a bunch of different things at different points in time. What I do now isn't necessarily what I used to do five, six, seven, eight years ago, and that's okay. These things change over time as we change. But after my breakdown, firstly and foremost, what was really important for me was antidepressant medication. And as I said earlier, what that did was put a false bottom on things for me. It stopped me diving really low and getting really flat and reaching those deep dark places that I'd begun to spend far too much time, even though I didn't want to. I took antidepressants for 11 years and it was that period of time with fluctuating dosages and reviews by GP and psychiatrist before I felt confident enough to consider life without antidepressants which I'm now living and feel very capable and safe to be doing. 
The other thing I found incredibly useful is psychological therapy, seeing psychologists. I've seen a dozen or so different psychologists and psychiatrists over the last seven or eight years, and a few more before that as well, at different points in my life. I really encourage anyone who doesn't feel as though they have the sort of connection or rapport with their psychologist or counsellor to find someone else. There's nothing wrong with taking yourself off to see a different professional because you think they might better resonate with you. Think of yourself as a car. If you don't like the mechanic that you're seeing, go somewhere else. If they're too expensive, go somewhere else. If you feel like a bit of an idiot and don't think they're helping you to actually get better, go somewhere else. You're paying them good money. It's important that we feel comfortable professional shopping when it comes to our mental health because that rapport, that connection, that trust are all part of the therapeutic relationship which is so foundational to receiving and benefiting from psychological therapy. There are many forms or different modalities of psychological therapy. Cognitive behaviour therapy, or CBT, is the most dominant and widely practised form of psychotherapy these days. What that involves is working with people on their thoughts, feelings and behaviours and how they all interact with each other. I've really enjoyed and benefited from that in the past. It's been helpful for what I would sort of categorise as mild to moderate things that I needed to tackle. Something I found incredibly useful about a year and a half ago was a period of intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, or ISTDP. That involved digging a whole lot deeper going back a whole lot earlier in my life and really looking at my feelings and the way I responded or reacted to those things and whether they were healthy or not. And we could then identify some patterns about how I responded and interacted. I found that really challenging, but ultimately it was really enlightening because it helped me identify the things that I can change now as an adult and the things that I can control now as someone with greater insight. Gave me a greater sense of ownership over my own management and recovery and I learned a whole lot more about myself and was able to pick out with the psychologist a bunch of different things that I can actively make an effort to change. And a year and a half on, I have never felt more peace, I have never felt more happy, and I've never felt more contentment. So it might be really difficult and challenging to what other people would call rake over the past, but history is just a lesson book. That's what it is. Our own lives offer us insights into how we became the people we are or how we might become the people we want to be. It is an incredibly rich resource that we ought to feel no shame or embarrassment for tapping into. I've also really benefited from another modality of psychological therapy called internal family systems. You might have heard of it commonly referred to as parts therapy. And it's based on acknowledging all the different parts of us, getting to know and understand them better and bring us to a place of feeling more complete. For example... I was able to learn and identify that there was a part of me that used food and the feeling of fullness to try and replace feelings I didn't understand or couldn't handle. So when I was really sad or felt hopeless or despondent, I would eat my emotions, as the saying goes, so that my mind and body were focused on the taste and the sense of feeling full or overfull instead of those uncomfortable feelings. Internal family systems therapy helped me to really go inward and connect with other protective behaviours that I'd developed in the past to try and understand them and to let go of them. I found it really incredibly powerful and positive. Outside of psychological therapy, anything that gets our body moving, anything that helps us improve our nutrition, strengthen our connection with other people and our social network is going to be really beneficial, however challenging it really can be at times. 
If there's a sense of debilitation when it comes to daily support and interaction in your life, please see a professional. Access some services that could be really beneficial for you. Contact organisations like Beyond Blue. Have a look at this book. Have a look at some of the things in there and see what you think might be worth giving a go. But please take a step. Depression is a real medical illness and you can recover. You can seek treatment and you can move forward. So please, if you're feeling flat or despondent, lethargic, different to how you normally would, take a step. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you've got this far, I appreciate your ears and your attention and your heart and your mind and your company. Keep an ear out for our next episode. These will be published around the second week of each month. Any thoughts or ideas about what you would like future episodes to include, please let me know. Get in touch, podcast at heartandup.com.au and tell me what you'd like us to cover. Don't forget there's a range of merchandise available. If you are at all interested, it's available at heartandup.com.au forward slash shop. Thank you very much for your time and company. See you next episode.